Good morning, everyone. I'm John Schmidt. I'm the senior pastor here at Centerpoint Fellowship, and I want to welcome you to this next installment of our Christmas series. Uh, the series is entitled The Incarnation, and we're spending all of our Sundays in December here of this year talking about why the incarnation matters. Last week we talked about, well, it matters because through the incarnation we can know what God is like when he came and lived among us. I mean, that's what the Bible claims, that God became flesh and dwelt among us. Well, uh, today we're going to look at another reason why the incarnation matters, and it's the headline or the title of the message that I've got. There's an insert inside your bulletin, and my message for today is entitled, We Can Be Certain Our Sins Are Forgiven. The incarnation matters because we can be certain our sins are forgiven since God became one of us. If you're not sure exactly why that would all work out, well, that's what I want to explain to you today, um, how that all fits together. So I'm so glad you're with us. I'm glad for all the folks watching us online and our sites in Wetumpka and Cloverdale and, um, and for the folks that are watching even at Pike Road. We're glad you're with us today. I'd like to have a word of prayer and jump right in. Would you pray with me, please? Lord, I thank you that Christmas is just a few uh, weeks away. I pray that, Lord, you will bless our time together. I thankful, I'm thankful, Lord, that you became one of us um, and made it possible for our sins to be forgiven. I pray that today you'll speak and make it clear why that was all necessary. In the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen. And let me just say a word why this whole series is necessary. Wasn't that uh, just a few days ago? I was flipping through the channels on the television, caught the end of one of the holiday specials coming on, and people, some people were sitting around a Christmas tree drinking eggnog and kind of hugging each other, and they said, this is what Christmas is all about. Um, I guess hugging each other and drinking eggnog, okay, or, or hot cocoa. Well, I'm all for eggnog and hot cocoa, and I love Christmas trees, but that's not what Christmas is all about. It'd be like somebody going to a football game and they're at the football game, and they like the hot dogs in the concession stand, and they like hanging out with you. And go, you know, eating hot dogs and hanging out with you. That's what football is all about. You go, no, I like hanging out with you, and I like hot dogs, but football is about victory out on the field. You know what Christmas is about? It's about victory over sin and death. That's what it's about. Amen. And Jesus made that possible. And uh, all that became possible because of the incarnation. There are three steps or in logic or three um, arguments I'd like to put forward on here are three points to this argument is a better way to say it yet for why it was necessary for God to become uh, human in order to pay for our sins. And the first point is the first point of your outline that I'd like to make this morning is this. Jesus was born to Mary while she was a virgin. I mean, for us to understand why it was important for uh, God uh, to come down to earth with skin on, that's what incarnation is again, uh, we have to understand it begins that it all is necessary, is all made clear when we start understanding that Jesus was born of a virgin. Luke 1, uh, Luke records this for us. God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a village in Galilee, to a virgin named Mary. She was engaged to a man, uh, engaged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of King David. And Gabriel appeared to her and said, Greetings, favored woman, the Lord is with you. It's important to note out of this passage that uh, Mary was a virgin at the time when the angel appeared to her and uh, that she was from a town called Nazareth. It's important because Nazareth, Nazareth was a small little town that was out of the way where nobody important had ever come from before. Uh, kind of like if we'd say, you know, an angel appeared to someone in slap out, okay? And, uh, uh, you know, you go, there's nothing wrong with slap out. You just wouldn't expect anybody important to come from there. Nazareth was uh, miles and miles away. Now, you know, it's like, sure, it could happen, but you wouldn't expect God to send his son there. I mean, this is a big deal. Nazareth, a little town, nowhere. 
and, and to a young woman who was poor, like Mary? Why would he do that? And then why on earth would he choose to uh, send his son to a woman who was a virgin? Well, that's about to all be made clear to us. Now, it's also important to note here that when the angel appeared to him, he said, greetings to Mary. Well, greetings in the Old English would be the word hail. In Latin, it would be ave. So if you said hello to John in Latin, it would be ave, John, or hail, John. To Mary, it would be hail, Mary, or ave, Maria. And that's where that comes from. It was the greeting of the angel. Had nothing to do with football. Amazingly, nobody threw a pass. Okay, there was nothing to do with it. And so uh, this is what this was all about. Well, the angel appeared to her, and confused and disturbed, Mary tried to think of what the angel could mean. Don't be afraid, Mary, the angel told her. You have found favor with God. You will conceive and give birth to a son, and you will name him Jesus. By the way, in the margin, write these words. Jesus means the Lord saves. That's what the name Jesus means. I mentioned that last week. I'm going to mention that every week uh, during this series because we forget the name of Jesus, what it means. This is why it's so wrong to take the name of Jesus in vain. Jesus came to save us of our sins. That was his mission. That's literally what his name means. And you will name him Jesus. He will be very great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his ancestor David, and he will reign over Israel forever. His kingdom will never end. And Mary asked the angel, but how can this happen? I'm a virgin. And the angel replied, the Holy Spirit will come upon you. The power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the baby to be born will be holy. And he will be called the Son of God, for nothing is impossible with God. And if you don't align the words, nothing is impossible with God. That brings us to our next note in your outline. Jesus' virgin birth is a miracle. It's beyond human logic or reasoning. This is an act of the divine. God did this. By placing Jesus into Mary's womb, Jesus could be fully God and fully human at the same time. This is a miracle. It's never happened. It hadn't happened before. It's never happened since. This is a special miracle um, so that God can walk our earth in the flesh. And that's who Jesus claimed to be. Now, we know it was a miracle because not only did Mary have questions how that could be, but her fiancé Joseph had questions about the whole thing. Mary told him that she was expecting a child, and so when Joseph asked, well, who is the father, Mary? Um, she said, well, Joseph, an angel came to me and said the Lord would do this, so God's the one uh, who caused me to be pregnant. Well, Joseph will have thought she was having some kind of nervous breakdown or was losing her mind and was thinking about putting her away quietly and didn't know what had happened or why she was making up the story, I guess. But that's what we find going on in Matthew 1. Mary was engaged to be married to Joseph, but before the marriage took place, while she was still a virgin, she became pregnant through the power of the Holy Spirit. Joseph, her fiancé, was a good man and didn't want to disgrace her publicly, so he decided to break the engagement quietly. As he considered all this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream. Joseph, son of David, the angel said, Don't be afraid to take Mary as your wife, for the child within her was conceived by the Holy Spirit. She will have a son, and you are to name him Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. The Lord saves. And so the reason I bring all this up again, that it's a miracle, well, an angel needed to appear to Joseph in a dream too, because 
when angels are sent by God, they're sent to explain things to the people who are involved who couldn't grasp it any other way. This was a special message. In fact, Gabriel, when he was sent to Mary, I mean, Gabriel was the one who had appeared to Daniel more than 500 years earlier and told him what God was doing in his time and in times to come. Gabriel was the one who had also appeared to the father of John the Baptist, telling him, hey, you're going to have a special child who will be a forerunner of the Messiah. So people would know that God was moving. I mean, angels are messengers of the Most High, supernatural beings who carry out God's business. And Gabriel appeared to Mary, and an angel appeared to Joseph in a dream, so they would understand this was a miraculous event. And so we celebrate the birth of Christ. We're celebrating a virgin birth. And I need to bring all this up because you'll find in publications now during the month of December, or you'll find online lots of articles now that'll tell you, well, virgin could be just translated young woman. It wasn't that Mary was a virgin. I mean, she could just be a young girl. And then take all the miraculous out of it. I talked to somebody not that long ago, and they said, you know, I just have a real problem with the whole idea of the virgin birth. I go, well, you're going to have a real problem with Easter then, okay, because it gets that's even harder to believe. I mean, look, our Christian faith is faith. It requires faith. We're believing in a God who can do amazing and impossible things, things that are not possible for you and me. That's why we come to him for salvation. That's why we come to him for wisdom. That's why we come to him for direction and for healing and for guidance, all the things that matter in our lives, because he can do things we can't do. He's God, and we're not. And that brings us to a life application here. You and I must live by faith. And if the word faith isn't as meaningful to you as the word trust, write the word trust in there. You and I need to live by trust in God. What God is looking for in this world, he's looking for people who will trust him. When he asks us to forgive, we're really going to forgive and trust him and say, Lord, you want me to forgive? If there's any score to be settled, you'll take care of it. God, I'm going to trust you if you want me to go in a new venture or take a new job or go a new direction or step up to leadership in a ministry somewhere or give a charitable donation, whatever it be. Lord, I'm going to trust you completely. And God's looking for people who will listen to him and trust him. They'll trust and obey. That's what the writer of Hebrews is talking about in Hebrews 11.1. 1. Faith is the confidence of what we hope for. Well, what we hope for will actually happen. It gives us assurance about the things we cannot see. And you got to remember, Joseph and Mary, Jesus looked just like an ordinary baby when he was born. It wasn't until more than 30 years later that Jesus was teaching and performing these miracles. He just looked like an ordinary baby. And Mary got to see the crucifixion and the resurrection of things, but Joseph apparently didn't live that long. But they trusted God anyway. Amazing. It's impossible to please God without faith. Anyone who wants to come to him must believe that God exists and that he rewards those who sincerely seek him. So Mary responded in faith. When the angel told her she was going to give birth to a child, that God was going to place this baby inside of her womb, supernaturally, she said, I'm the Lord's servant. May everything you have said about me come true. And the angel left her. Similarly, when the angel appeared to Joseph in the dream, when Joseph woke up, he did what the angel of the Lord had commanded him to do, and he took Mary home as his wife. But he had no union with her until she gave birth to a son, and just as the angel told him to do, he gave him the name Jesus, which means the Lord saves. They were obedient. They didn't know how it was all going to turn out, but they knew if God was calling them to do something, 
they would trust him. I'm a big fan of Charles Stanley, the longtime pastor of First Baptist in Atlanta. And whenever he has a big point he wants to drive home, he goes, listen to me, listen to me. And I can't get the imitation down exactly, but um, one of the things that he hammers home every so often, I've heard him say it many, many times, is this, is that what God is looking for, he's looking for people who will obey him and trust him with the consequences. Hey, I'm just going to obey what God tells me to do. I don't know how it's all going to turn out, but I know that obeying God and trusting him with the consequences is better than anything that I could do on my own. And what if this Christmas, God's calling us to step out on faith? What if he's calling you to trust him in a new direction? Or like I said, with forgiveness. Or starting again. Maybe he's, call, maybe he's calling you this Christmas to come back to him. Come home. Trust him. Following him is the best possible way to live. Let's just trust and obey him and leave the consequences to him. That's one of the things God wants from us for Christmas. Just to trust him more. So if we're going to understand why it matters that Jesus, that God was incarnated, that Jesus was God in the flesh, we have to understand that in order to understand why it was necessary for him to do that so our sins could be forgiven, we have to understand that he was born to Mary while she was still a virgin. That's why Joseph even needed an angelic explanation because this was something that was beyond human wisdom or reason. That brings us to point two. Now, because Jesus was born to Mary while she was a virgin, he never inherited a sin nature. The Bible tells us that we inherit a sin nature from our parents. The Bible makes it very clear that all have sinned. We're all sinners. Our parents were sinners. Our grandparents were sinners. Our great-grandparents were sinners all the way back to Adam and Eve. Because in the Garden of Eden, when the first two people that God created chose to go their own way and disobey God, they sinned and were cast out of God's presence. All the children born to them and grandchildren and great-grandchildren and so on, all the way down to our current generation, we've inherited that same propensity for going our own way. We're sinners. If you don't believe that we inherit a sin nature, just wait until you have children. You'll believe you don't have to teach your kids to sin. You don't have to. I remember one of our children was two or so and was throwing a fit one day on the floor, arching his back. And so I asked my wife, did you teach him to do this while I was at work? Are you the one teaching him how to throw a tantrum? Well, the answer is obviously not. We don't have to teach our kids how to throw a tantrum. You have to teach them how to calm down. You don't have to teach your... Yeah, there was somebody saying amen on that. Okay, anyway, uh, we don't have to teach our children how to lie. We have to teach them how to tell the truth. At a school, you have an honor code, not a cheat code. Boys and girls, you've all been doing such good work. Everybody's doing their work. Let me teach you how to cheat today so you'll know. You don't have to teach people how to steal. You have to teach people how to share and be generous. And it's not just American kids. It's Chinese kids, Russian kids, Australian kids, African kids, all over the world. Now, why does no culture get this right? where all the kids are born and nobody ever does anything wrong. In fact, there's never been a culture like that ever in the history of the world. And the Bible says that's because we inherit a sin nature. It's been that way since the garden. And this is the problem that Jesus came to solve. Because God is righteous and holy, and we are all sinners. And so there's a huge gulf between us. 
And we can't be reunited with God and right fellowship with him until our sins are paid for. The problem is, is that sin carries with it the penalty of death. And since we're all a bunch of sinners, <coughs> even if I love you or you love me, I can't die for you and take your place and pay the penalty for you because I'm just as guilty as you are. It's as if the two of us were walking down the road and we fell into a 25, 30-foot hole. Well, I can't help you out and you can't help me out. It's too deep. The only thing we can do <coughs> is we can cry for help and hope somebody comes along who hasn't fallen in, who can throw a rope down to us and pull us out. I mean, that's pretty much the situation the Bible's talking about, that I'm a sinner, you're a sinner, and there's nothing we can do about our sinful condition. And we all deserve to die because the wages of sin is death. When's somebody going to come along from the outside who can rescue us? Well, the Bible says that's Jesus. In fact, the writer of Hebrews talks about this. He says, because God's children are human beings made of flesh and blood, the Son, Jesus, also became flesh and blood. For only as a human being could he die, and only by dying could he break the power of the devil who had the power of death. Only in this way could he set free all who have lived their lives as slaves to the fear of dying. Therefore, it was necessary for him to be made in every respect like us, his brothers and sisters, so that he could be our merciful and faithful high priest before God. Then he could offer a sacrifice that would take away the sins of the people. I mean, in the Old Testament, God had commanded... Moses to set up a sacrificial system where people would atone from their sins by offering the best of their herd. But an animal to human sacrifice, an animal sacrifice on behalf of a human wasn't a one-to-one -one correlation. It had to be repeated over and over again. And when would there ever come a sacrifice that would be permanent? Well, the Bible tells us that's what Jesus claimed to be. And that's what he came to do. If you flip your outline over on Hebrews 4.15, 4, I read you a passage from Hebrews 2. This is Hebrews 4. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet was without sin. But John, if Jesus is going to die for my sins, I mean, does he really understand what it's like to be tempted to sin? Because I've, I've sinned a bunch, and I've been tempted in lots of ways. But Jesus understands. In fact, Jesus was tempted by the devil himself, face to face, with unbelievable temptations, yet he did not concede and give in to them. Not only was he born sinless, but he remained sinless so that when he died, he could take our sins upon himself. There's a life application for you and me out of this. Jesus understands what it's like to be tempted, and he will help us overcome sin. Jesus understands what it's like to be tempted, and he'll help us overcome sin. The writer of Hebrews again. Since Jesus himself has gone through suffering and testing, he's able to help us when we are being tested. Sometimes when the devil tempts us to sin, he'll also tempt us to get far away from God. Well, man, if you're tempted to do this and don't hang around God, God will hate you now. He'll never accept you now. That's, complete, that's a complete and total lie. When you and I are tempted to sin, that's the time to run toward God and say, God, I'm being tempted by the evil one. Help me. I mean, that's exactly what Jesus told his disciples to pray. When they asked him how to pray, he said, pray like this. Our Father in heaven, may your name be kept holy and may your kingdom come soon. May your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And don't let us yield to temptation, but rescue us from the evil one. If you'd circle the word rescue. I mean, Jesus came on a rescue mission to rescue us from sin and death. He says, if you come to me, 
I'll forgive your sins. I'll take them upon myself and I'll ask the Father to send the Holy Spirit to you and he will come inside of you and empower you to overcome sin and temptation. So the thing that God wants us to do is he wants us to come to him, to pray to him, especially when we're being tempted to do things that are evil or wicked or wrong. Jesus is the only human being who's ever lived who is perfect and sinless. And if we come to him, he'll give us the strength to overcome sin as well. I mean, that's a wonderful promise to know. We can know through Christ that we don't have to say yes to the devil's temptations. We can know if we turn to Christ, he'll give us the power to overcome sin and overcome temptation. If that's good news to you this morning, would you say amen? Man, let's call on him. Maybe this Christmas, that's what he's calling you to do. Maybe you've just been getting beat up, given in to a, an addiction. That, it's just got your number. Maybe you're giving in to a bad attitude. You've just given up on goals and um, some priorities in your life that you know God wants you to get to be moving toward, and you just don't have the strength to do it. Well, come to Jesus and say, God, help me. You understand me. Jesus was born to a poor woman in a small little town, middle of nowhere. Jesus knows what it's like to feel insignificant. Jesus knows what it's like to be poor. The Romans were in charge at the time, and they looked upon the Hebrews as a small minority. Jesus knows what it's like to be a minority. Jesus knows what it's like to have friends that desert you. The disciples all did. Jesus knows what it's like to be betrayed. Judas did. Peter did. Jesus knows what it's like to be falsely accused. Jesus knows what it's like to die. Jesus understands. If there's anybody who understands what it's like to face temptation, he lived our life, he died our death, he suffered all of our griefs and temptations, and he did it because he loves us, and so we can come to him. So Jesus was born of a virgin. Because he was born of a virgin, he never inherited a sin nature, though he was tempted in every way just as we are. Thirdly, this matters because Jesus never inherited a sin nature, he was able to pay the penalty for our sins. Now remember, the Old Testament system was an animal for your sins, the pride of your herd. Instead of selling the animal and, and getting the profit for it, you have to slay the animal, bring it to the priest. The priest will slit its throat, catch the blood, sprinkle some of the blood on the Ark of the Covenant and some of the blood on you. And so people would walk away with blood from the animals splattered upon them, reminding them that something had to die. The pride of their herd had to die so they could live. And the priests went through this over and over again for centuries. And the question was, well, is there ever going to be a sacrifice that's enough? Not until Jesus. And because Jesus never inherited a sin nature, it made it possible for him to die in my place. Because I have a sin nature, and so do you. So the only one who could take my place is the one who wasn't contaminated, and that's Jesus. Here are a couple of verses that speak about this. I could have listed many more. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. That's Romans 6.23. Isaiah 53.6. All of us like sheep have strayed away. We've left God's paths to follow our own. Yet the Lord laid on him, speaking of Jesus, the sins of us all. 1 Peter 3.18. Christ suffered for our sins once for all time. He never sinned, but he died for sinners to bring you safely home to God. And here's an important thing to note about this. Jesus paid the penalty for our sins once and for all. 
This was the permanent sacrifice that people have been longing for for centuries. Under the old covenant, the writer of Hebrews says, the priest stands and ministers before the altar day after day, offering the same sacrifices again and again, which can never take away sins. But our high priest, Jesus, offered himself to God as a single sacrifice for sins, good for all time. Then he sat down in the place of honor at God's right hand. You can find all kinds of descriptions of the Old Testament temple and tabernacle, and God instructed Moses how to create altars, which are like big giant barbecue pits to burn these animals, their carcasses, as animal sacrifices. There were all kinds of descriptions about water basins for the priests to wash in and incense burners and candelabras and all kinds of things. But there was one thing, there was one piece of furniture that's nowhere mentioned in the Bible about the temple or the tabernacle, and that's a chair. Because the priests never sat down. Their work was continuous. They just took shifts. When their shift was done, the other priest came on, the next shift came on, and they offered sacrifices again. As soon as you offer a sacrifice and the people would leave, they'd go right back to sinning again. And so they have to come the next year and the next year, animal after animal, over and over again. But when Jesus came and he offered himself as a sacrifice for our sins, the Bible says he sat down. Because the permanent sacrifice had been made. And to the Hebrews who would have been reading this, that would have been unbelievable. And that's why Jesus' final words on the cross were these. Jesus said, it is finished. And then he bowed his head and released his spirit. Would you say those three words with me, please? It is finished. One more time. It is finished. What's finished? The whole thing. The whole sacrificial system, it's done. We're done here. I paid the debt in full. Because I'm sinless, I can die for sinners. And because I'm God, I love you enough to do it. That's the message of Christmas. That's why we celebrate Christmas. That's what Christmas is all about, Charlie Brown. Okay, I mean, that's what it's all about. Look, I, like I said, I love eggnog, I love cocoa, I love singing around the Christmas tree. But that's not what Christmas is about. Christmas is about celebrating because God found a way, God made a way for our sins to be forgiven so we can be re reunited with him. God gave his son as a gift to us. That's why at Christmas we give gifts to others, to remind ourselves of God's generosity toward us. Let's not miss that. There's another note in your outline. By the way, the, another implication of this is that Jesus is the only person able to die in our place. This is why we worship him as Savior and Lord. He's the only one. A lot of people will say, well, John, that's not politically correct these days. I mean, to be politically correct, you have to be much more open-minded to the fact there's lots of ways to God. I mean, as long as people are sincere, does it really matter what they believe? Yes. Because Jesus is the only one who was born to a virgin. Therefore, he's the only one who, ever, who did not inherit a sin nature. Therefore, he's the only one who could die in our place. He's fully God and fully human at the same time. There is no one else like Jesus. There's no other name by which we might be saved. That's why Paul wrote to Timothy and he said, Look, there's only one God and there's only one mediator. A mediator is someone who stands in the middle. Sinful people on one side, 
holy God on the other. Jesus is the mediator in the middle. He made the bridge. There's only one mediator who can reconcile God and humanity, the man Christ Jesus. He gave his life to purchase freedom for everyone, and this is the message God gave to the world at just the right time. And that's the message we celebrate at Christmas time. Jesus is the mediator, the one who can reconcile us with God. God loved the world so much that he gave his only son, so that whoever believes in him would not perish but have everlasting life. That's the good news of Christmas, and that's why we celebrate it. Jesus was born of a virgin, so he didn't have a sin, sin nature, and because of that, he's the only one who was able to pay for our sins permanently. Now, as one last life application on this, God wants everyone to come to him, no matter who we are or what we've done. I want to make this clear. When Jesus came into the world, he became one of us so he could save us. If he became one of us so he could save us, which is what the Bible says, to become sin on our behalf, then he knew we were sinners going in. So it would be ridiculous to tell somebody, well, God can't accept you. You're too much of a sinner. Well, that's impossible because he came precisely to save sinners. That's why the people who were religious leaders who were pretty self-righteous in Jesus' day, they had a hard time with Jesus' whole ministry. This is what Mark records for us. When, when Jesus was traveling with his disciples, he would have dinners with notorious sinners. Mark 2. Now, when the teachers of the religious law, who were Pharisees, saw Jesus eating with tax collectors and other sinners, they asked Jesus' disciples, why does he eat with such scum? And when Jesus heard this, he told them, healthy people don't need a doctor, sick people do. I've come to call not those who think they're righteous, but those who know they're sinners. If you know that you're a sinner and you're far away from God this morning, come back to God. Confess your sins. Come back. He's waiting for you with arms open. He sent Jesus to rescue you and me. Come home. Jesus Christ died for all of us on the cross, no matter who we are, no matter what we've done. This is what Paul was talking about in 2 Corinthians 5. So we're Christ's ambassadors. God is making his appeal through us. We speak for Christ when we plead, come back to God. For God made Christ, who never sinned, to be the offering for our sin so that we could be made right with God through Christ. Jesus Christ became one of us so we could be rightly reconciled with God. If you know a person who's far from God, Christmas is the time to pray for them. Christmas is the time to bring them. I promise you, if you bring someone to a candlelight service at this church, if you bring them to any of these messages, I will tell them about Jesus. I promise. I love Christmas for this reason. To remind us all over and over again how wonderful God is toward us and how much he loves us. Never forget that. We had some baptisms here earlier in this service, at every service today here. And one of the things that's so incredible about it is is as people are coming up out of the water, it symbolizes that their sins are washed away by the blood of Jesus. If you're far from God, come home. If you know someone else who's far away from him, pray for them and ask God to help you help them discover how great and how wonderful his love really is. Would you pray with me, please? Lord, I thank you for the incarnation. I thank you that you became one of us. I thank you, Lord, that you placed Jesus inside of Mary's womb and that she and Joseph were just obedient to you and trusted you to work out your plan, even though they had no idea how it was all going to turn out. 
They must have suffered a lot of ridicule and people must have misunderstood them. But they trusted you more than anything else. And they are honored because of it. And we honor them today. Father, I thank you for the opportunity we have to come before you and pray about this Christmas. I pray, Lord, that you would remind us as we celebrate this holiday how wonderfully generous and kind you've been to us by sending Christ to die on the cross for our sins. If you have not yet thanked God today that he died on the cross, he sent his son to die on the cross for your sins, to wash all your sins away, would you thank him now and say, Lord, thank you for sending Jesus. Thank you, Lord, that my sins are forgiven in the name of Christ. Father, I pray that we will celebrate that wonderful truth, not just at Christmas, but all throughout the year. And Father, I pray for friends of ours who are far away from you, who've been making wrong choices, sinful choices, and suffering the painful and horrible consequences of doing so. And God, I pray that you'd remind us to pray for them often. I pray, Lord, that if you can, that you'd use us, Lord, to give them hope give them the good news of Jesus. God, we're all sinners. Not a one of us could stand and say, I've never sinned. But Lord, we are grateful that we can stand before you one day with our sins washed away because of what Jesus did for us. Thank you for your great love for us. Thank you for sending your son. It's in the name of Jesus, whose very name means the Lord saves, that we pray these things together. Amen.